Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Hey friends, do you notice anything different today? Yeah, well, the lights are off. I know. Did you think somebody needs to do something about this? I mean, it's, it's, it actually feels weird. It's like it used to be, uh, but it feels strange. For those of you watching at home, you don't need to email me and tell me that I'm dark today and I, I, look, I, I don't look like I'm feeling well. It's the lights. So the windstorm that knocked the power off and on several times yesterday did something to our light panel, our light system, and uh, so it's not working today. And so for that reason, uh, we're just worshiping by chandeliers like they did back in Jesus' day. And, um, and, and you can't hide out there if you're in the audience today. Of course, those of you virtually, you hide every week. But you're, you can't hide if you're in here. I can see you. But this dirty secret is I can see pretty well anyway. I know where you are. I know what you're doing during worship, just so you know. Uh, I do get emails all the time about different things. And <coughs> a guy named Smitty, who used to attend Columbia, <coughs> pardon me, allergies are getting to me this time of year. Uh, he, he hit me up this week. He watches virtually every week. And, uh, and he wanted me to know that, that he finds the whole light thing distracting, all the lights behind me. And you don't have to email and agree with that either. It's okay. But anyway, it does look better, I think, when it's being produced. I, I enjoy those. I like them. But he said it was distracting and that uh, he couldn't pay as good of attention to me uh, with all that lighting uh, on in the background, which I don't know. I, last week, he apparently didn't know it wasn't even me. It was Chris. So apparently watching that, he didn't see. So Smitty, this is your fault. He prayed for this, and um, they may never come back. But anyway, for this Sunday, this is how we are. We're going to wrap up this sermon series this week that's meant a lot to me personally. I know I say that often, (coughs) pardon me, because it's often true. And it's often true because occasionally I will preach something that's been on my heart for a long time. You know, an idea that I've had for a really long time. Occasionally. (coughs) Wow. But usually not. Generally speaking, it's something that has hit me as I've read Scripture, that the Lord has spoken to me about. And when that happens, I have to first sit with that. So let me tell you that I try to read formationally first. So I'm reading Scripture just like you are. Every day I'm praying about it and asking that the Holy Spirit would inspire it. And the first question I ask is, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my life? How is God speaking to me? But if that impact is great, and and if I find something that just kind of leaps off the page, the very next thing I will pray is, is, Lord, is this something that you mean for your people and not just for me? And in this instance, this is about a six or eight month uh, sermon series in the making. And in this case, this is one of the times that I felt a profound direct word from God that this was for you and not just for me. And, and I think for our culture too, when it comes to identity, we live in a day where people are being identified and are choosing identities of all different sorts. I mean, thousands of different options. Maybe a lot of things in the world haven't changed. The world's always been fallen, or since Adam and Eve first sinned, it has been. There's always been this issue of choosing a fraudulent identity, but the options seem greater to me today. And as the students are here today, I I really think, I, I wouldn't say you're living in a different world than old people like some of us are, but what I would say is that that world has been amplified in specific ways. 
Social media in, in particular for me has been a tremendous amplifier. Many of you know I stay off of it. I often get people uh, to say to me, you need to be on social media. I'm just not going to do it because I refuse to live in that kind of an audience. That I, I, don't, I don't really want that. I don't want a platform. I don't desire a place where I'm trying to define myself in, in the light of so many different ideas and, and having to react to things that are out there. It doesn't mean I pay no attention to it. I do see what you post, just so you know. I do know what the congregation is up to, but I choose not to. And, and, and maybe that makes me a dinosaur, uh, and maybe that's a problem. But as far as I'm concerned, it would change my nature. It would change something fundamental about who I am. And it would jeopardize something, not only as a pastor, but as a person that I'm just not willing to give up. But in, in terms of what's happening, this whole audience platforming thing is encouraging people to choose their group, to choose their team, to choose their thing, and to despise anything else but their team and their thing. There's a polarizing aspect to this. It's dangerous, in my personal opinion. And sooner or later, I think we will get used to it. As we'll, we'll become accustomed to this, and we'll find ways of circumnavigating what this is doing to us. But for right now, we live in a time of very rapid transition. And in this time of transition, I just don't think we figured out how to deal with it. Now, this is nothing new in one sense, because the media <clears throat> has always buffeted us with ideas. Some of them are appropriate for human consumption, and some of them are not appropriate for dogs, but they're out there. It's all over the place. It's unbelievable how many options there are and how many perspectives there are. And of course, all of us know that we've been shaped to some extent by the media presentation of what life ought to be. How many of you remember a 1988 movie? This is the second year of our marriage, Debbie and mine. The year after I graduated from college, I was a newly minted pastor leading a congregation for the first time, and a film came out that was highly controversial, at least in Christian circles, and that film was called The Last Temptation of Christ. How many of you remember The Last Temptation of Christ? Now, you just dated yourself. None of you remember The Last Temptation of Christ, because this is, this is before any of you was born. But, but many of us remember this, and, and it was controversial for a number of reasons. One thing that Martin Scorsese did in his a particular rendition of, of a book by Nikos Kazantzakis, one thing that he did was to try to be provocative. He attempted to raise some ideas. And those ideas really were theologically sound. Now, listen to me carefully, and that's what I'm talking about in this series. The notion was that Jesus could have been tempted to choose a different path at any point. The idea was that Jesus constantly thought about alternatives. That's what temptation is. The understanding of the film was that Jesus could have chosen something other than the cross. I think you will agree with me that is theologically sound. But it was presented in an incredibly provocative way. The most powerful and effective scene, I would say, of the movie, and yes, I have seen the movie. By the way, everybody who complained about it in 1988 had seen it too. It was really clear to me that the people in my church who were in a hue and cry about this film had seen it. 
because they knew details of that film they couldn't have known otherwise. And they'd come to me to talk about it, and I'd, I'd ask, did you see it? And they'd go, uh, well, we felt it was our Christian responsibility to check it out. Interesting how we do that. The most effective and provocative scene had Jesus hanging on the cross and contemplating other possibilities. Jesus, as he's dying, is thinking about a normal life that he could have chosen. And this normal life involved a marriage to Mary Magdalene, which isn't a new idea, by the way. It's thousands of years old. But this this idea involved a marriage to Mary Magdalene that was consummated. And he imagined the consummation. This drove people to distraction. It drove some people to despair. A lot of preachers spent a lot of sermons preaching against this movie, but I did not. I didn't utter a word like the Lamb of God. I did not utter a word from the pulpit about this movie except to say it was provocative. And the reason I did not was not because the film didn't have problems. It did. It was sacrilegious. It was problematic in some ways. But because the problem my people had with it was not the problem. The trouble that they had was not the trouble. What bothered them was the very notion that Jesus, while on the cross and while approaching the cross, considered alternatives to God's plan for his life. That drove them insane. I remember speaking to one of my dear friends who was a member of the congregation I was leading, a a leader and a great guy. And in speaking with him, he came to me to talk about this film, and he said he was deeply troubled by by this film, which he had clearly seen, by the way. And I I said to him, "What, what troubles you about it? Let me understand what upsets you about it. He said, the, the idea that Jesus, while on the cross dying for my sins, would think about sex is so revolting that I don't know what to do with it. I said, well, as I understand it, it was really about a different life. It wasn't about sex per se, but about a, a marriage and what a marriage involved. Well, I just, I cannot stomach that, he said. I said, so let me get this straight. You believe that a fully man-man, a fully human human, who the Bible says, as I'll mention in a moment, was tempted in every way as we are. You believe that someone who had the agency and the capacity to get off that cross where he was in agony and pain and choose something different and that something different might be pleasurable, you believe that that is anathema to the gospel. He says, absolutely So you do not believe that in the last week of Jesus' life, let's just take that holy week, you do not believe that Jesus considered other alternatives. No way, he says to me. And I said to him, then what meaning can the cross possibly have? Now give this some thought. Because if Jesus didn't have a choice, the cross means nothing. If Jesus could not have chosen otherwise and didn't consider otherwise, the cross means nothing. If Jesus, by sheer will and obedience to his Father's will, did not willingly choose, as the Bible clearly says, to give up his life 
as a sacrifice for our sins, then there is no sacrifice for our sins. Amen? And in order for Jesus to have made that choice, there had to be other choices, which means he had to have been tempted to choose otherwise. You say, well, even while hanging on the cross. Now, this is where I could go with my friend a little bit. Maybe by the time Jesus actually reaches Calvary, he is so resolved to the purpose and the mission that that is the only thing on his mind. But I don't think so. Because it is hard to contemplate that that is possible for a man who, among other things, cried from the cross, I thirst, and my God, my God, finish it for me. Why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned. I believe Jesus was tempted from the moment he was born to the moment he died. Just like you are. Just like I am. I believe that Jesus overcame temptation at every turn and never sinned. But I believe if the temptation were not there, then none of it means a thing. It's amazing how we can easily contemplate Jesus as fully God, but we have such a struggle contemplating that he is fully human at the same time. That's a mystery I will say to you. It's a mystery I don't even fully understand. The incarnation blows my mind. It should blow yours, but maybe you're so accustomed to it you don't think about it anymore. But when we look at Jesus, we come face to face with two things, right? We come face to face with who God is, sure. But we also come face to face with who we are by comparison to Jesus and who we can be by the example of Jesus. We come face to face with ourselves when we meet the Master, not just with God. Now, Jesus' struggle with temptation did not begin or end in the wilderness. Now, you know the outline of the story. The way that we've studied it in this time, just really a brief account of Scripture in Matthew with some commentary from Galatians. And we've looked at just a couple of chapters of Scripture, not even a full two chapters. And, and we've talked about Jesus' baptism. We've talked about his being led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. But really, it's just at the end of that time of fasting that the devil shows up and tempts him three times. We've talked about what they mean, those buckets of temptation, as I'll mention again in just a second. And I think that most of us like to read the gospel this way. Jesus went into the desert and he overcame the tempter, and that was it. He was never tempted again. In just 40 days, he dealt with every temptation, actually the end of 40 days. He dealt with every temptation we ever will face. And, but from that point on, he's just kind of a walking deity. There's nothing fully human about him, and that's not right. The wilderness represents Jesus overcoming withering temptation, but that temptation can be seen all through his ministry. Now, the three buckets of temptation, they're not three temptations, they're buckets of temptation. First one is pleasure, the second one prominence or popularity, and the third one power. And we've looked at those in great detail. I'd suggest that everything we're tempted with can be put into one of these buckets. That's the purpose of the story. So Jesus was tempted in every single way as we are. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking about our high priest and our place as priests, Under the employment of the high priest, Jesus has been tempted in every single way, just as we are. (laughs) You think of a temptation you've had, and Jesus dealt with it. 
That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. You think about what you've had to overcome or you haven't overcome sometimes, and this is everything that Jesus overcame as the fully human. Jesus came that we might have life and life in all its fullness or all its abundance. As the fully human, this is everything he overcame, yet he did not sin. He chose no other identity except the one that God had given him, no other purpose except the one his heavenly Father had given to him. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need like Jesus was helped in his time of need. Let me take a corollary to this scripture. So we love to look at this and say, see there, Jesus is tempted in every way as we are. But can't we also reverse that with this scripture and say that we are tempted in every single way as Jesus was? That's interesting to think about, isn't it? But consider it. I am tempted in every way as Jesus was. If the author of Hebrews was writing about me, they'd say, Jim was tempted in every way as Jesus was, but he sinned. And instead, we're told about Jesus. He's tempted in every way we are, yet he did not sin. Jim was tempted in every way that Jesus was, yet he chose fraudulent identities at times. Jesus was tempted in every way that Jim is, and yet he never strayed from his real ID as the beloved son of the Father, with whom the Father was well pleased. This was Jesus' real ID, and he did not waver from it. Now, I would suggest to you that Jesus in the last week of his life was tempted on at least two occasions to choose another path. One of those times we know for sure is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you may read this differently, and if you do, just let me know. But I've read it many times. I've preached it many times. I think I understand it. So as I understand it, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had a will different than his father's. Do you understand it that way? That's important to see. He wanted something different than his father wanted. <coughs> he desired something different than his father desired. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, if you've ever been there, I'm looking at a couple of you who have, that is one place you will weep. You will weep surprisingly and uncontrollably. It will take you by surprise if you're ever there. And, and it won't matter how many times you've been. I mean, I've been uh, so many times now, most places I can go and I can tell other people about it, and this is cool, and I've seen it before. Why aren't you taking pictures? I've got millions. Why, you know, do you, have you seen this? Yes, I've seen that, etc. But when we go to Jerusalem and we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I think about Jesus kneeling under that ancient olive tree. You understand there are a couple of olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that date to the time of Jesus and before. This is, the one, this is where he was. And when you envision him there, sweating blood, in deep anguish and distress, denied by his closest friends who were asleep, one of them denying him three times that very, you, know, you imagine him being arrested there and you imagine him on his knees crying out to his father in anguish. If there's any way this cup could be taken from me. I, I want you to hear it the way he said it because I think we read it and we go, Father, if there's any way this cup could be taken from me, taketh it, please. But no, not my will, but thine be done. No, he's, Father, Abba, 
If, the, if there's any way this could be taken from me, please take it. But I will honor your will. I, I will do what you want. What I, what I want, I will put aside. But what did Jesus want? Of course, he wanted to cast off his real ID and his real purpose and his real mission and the cross and the agony of it all, the rejection, the mockery, the spitting. He wanted to push it all aside and he wanted to choose something else, and he could have. That's the thing. He could have gotten up and gone away in the night and, and disappeared and done something else with his life. But he didn't. I think he's tempted other times as well, and maybe we see shadows of that in the story, but the other time for sure I know he's tempted is on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a day of tremendous temptation for Jesus. You say, why? And the answer is because the people wanted something so different than his father wanted. They wanted something so different than than, than, than was the purpose of Jesus. They probably wanted something that would have been pleasing to Jesus, honestly. They, they wanted to coronate a nationalist king. They wanted to coronate one who would save them from the Romans, dash them under his holy feet. They wanted back what they'd had in the past. And what they'd had in the past was more pleasure, more prominence, and more power. And they wanted all of that back. They wanted the time of David back and, and better. That's what they wanted. And so they tempted Jesus. They taunted Jesus, if you will, from the side of the road and tried to define him. They tried to get him to choose a real ID different than the one the Father had given him. And, and he did not. But don't tell me he wasn't tempted. That's one of the real last temptations of Christ. In his baptism, Jesus was publicly marked with his real identity. And what was Jesus' real ID? Beloved Son of the Heavenly Father. And I've suggested to you, and it's not even a suggestion, it's highly biblical, especially in Paul's writing. In your baptism, if you will choose baptism, it's a submission. If you will choose baptism, you will be publicly marked with your real identity. And what is your real identity? Your real identity, whether you know it yet or not, is as a beloved child of the Heavenly Father. Now, again, it's fun to say this for me. I would say this, I am a beloved son of the Heavenly Father with whom he is well pleased. If you are his daughter, then you say, I am a beloved daughter of the Heavenly Father with whom he's well pleased. So all of us together, I am a beloved son of the heavenly father with whom he is well pleased you are a beloved daughter or you may not know it yet this is your real id this is what you were created to be this is your purpose for existence no matter what else you accomplish in life or don't no matter what else you own in life or don't no matter what else you do in life or don't no matter where you travel in life or don't if you never change any of that money that one of our brothers in Christ has changed it doesn't make any difference you are a beloved son or daughter of the heavenly father with whom he's well pleased that is your id and it can never be taken away from you but ah you can give it away it can be stolen from you if you open the door to the tempter or the devil. 
I'm not saying salvation can be taken. Let's park that on a different shelf. Your ID as a son or daughter of the living God can be taken away. You can give it away. And that's what the tempter would love for you to do. The problem is, of course, that there is no other identity. This is the only real one. There's no other real ID. Everything else is a fraud, a fake. Nothing else matters, and nothing else will last past the grave if that long. This is the only ID you can carry with you in eternity. It's the only one that's going to get you in through the pearly gates. It's the only one that's going to lead to the resurrection of your body and your movement to a new heaven and a new earth. This real ID is all there really is. Everything else is a charade. Now let's take a look at one of the real last temptations of Christ. At this story of the quote-unquote triumphal entry on that Sunday we now call Palm Sunday, a week before Easter. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As they, the apostles and Jesus, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. How many of you have seen this scene before? You seen this? This is Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, this is not Jerusalem of Jesus' day. This is Jerusalem of this past November when I took this picture. It's one of only like six I took. It was a beautiful day that day. Incredible day. The temperatures were amazing. The wind was blowing. It was just, there was was something going on that day. And we stood out and looked over Jerusalem. In the center is what is now known as the Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque that was erected in the late 7th century because lots of people call that ground holy, not just Christians and not just Jews. And so that Dome of the Rock is where the temple would have been. Other than that, and the big buildings in the background, which are modern day Jerusalem, the ancient city in the foreground, David's city, is what Jesus was looking at. And what we're told by Luke, not by Matthew, is that Jesus paused there for a moment. Now, why did he pause? Did he pause to get up his courage to ride into town? No. Did he pause to get a drink of water? Not a bad idea before you trek into the city. No. Did he pause to say to his disciples, hey guys, it's been real? Nope. Did he pause because one of the tourists was really slow and the group had to slow down? Uh, No, that was us, not Jesus. Nope. Luke 19, 41 through 44, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city from the Mount of Olives, which is really a big hill. He wept over it, and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, shalom, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Who is only you? Well, only you are the people who had traded in their real IDs for another a long time ago. Those who had forgotten what it meant to be a daughter or a son of the heavenly father or together to be the family of God. 
Those who had such hatred for the Romans and such desire for more, those with such amazing nationalistic zeal, they'd forgotten everything else but that. That politic dominated their life. It's all they thought about. They dreamed about getting back. They thought about getting even. They wanted retribution. They just wanted their lives back. The pleasure, the prominence, the popularity. And they wanted someone who would give that to them, and so they were awaiting a Messiah, all right, but they were awaiting one that would come in the image of David except greater, one that would come on a white stallion, one that would come to rescue them and overthrow the Romans, one that would come to reestablish Israel as the center point of the entire world. That's what they wanted, that's what they expected, and that's what they thought they'd get because most of us believe that sooner or later we will get what's coming to us. And in our brains, what should be coming to us should always be good. Am I right? Don't we believe that? What should be coming to us, what life should give to us is more of what we'd like to have. That's our expectation. Let me show you what Jesus said was coming to them. It was coming to them, all right. Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every single side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will dash your children down. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. My friends, does that sound to you like someone who's not facing temptation? Now listen, this is honest. That's real prophecy because that did happen. Jesus knows it's going to happen, and yes, it breaks his heart. But his statement there and his crying there is not just empathy. There's a lot going on here emotionally. There has to be for Jesus. And I want to suggest to you he could have made a different choice. He could start walking down that long, curvy road past the graveyard that was there in his day, past all the vineyards, and especially the olive gardens and olive presses, past the businesses and the people, down that winding road and into Jerusalem where there was no turning back, where trial and torture and mockery and rejection, pain, agony, and the cross awaited him, and that's what he did. So we tend to think that's the only direction he can go. But on that Mount of Olives, above the city, Jesus could have turned his back and he could have walked down the other side of the hill. What is on the other side of the hill? Same thing as was in Jesus' day. It's a necropolis called Silwan. Silwan is the wealthiest suburb of Jerusalem. Was in Jesus' day, is today. The wealthiest suburb of Jerusalem. Let's picture, for example, that I'm Jesus. I know that's hard to do sometimes for me too. And I'm here in Falls Church. And Falls Church is where I'm overlooking the city. And the city is D.C. And for D.C., for me, would involve death, martyrdom, agony, whatever. And I can either walk toward D.C. or I can turn my back and walk to my house in McLean. About the same distance, Tyson's Corner. And I can make that choice, right? I have that choice. I can choose. In fact, I won't even walk it. I'll drive. Make it easier. 
I can make that choice, and Jesus can make that choice right there. And he is being tempted to make that choice. Why should he die for people who don't even know what it is to live? Why should he save people who don't even want to be saved, really? Why should he give people who wanted something temporary salvation that would be permanent? Why should he do it? One reason and one reason only, and that was the love of his Father for him and for us. And because this was his real ID, this was his real purpose, and he chose it again. Just like we choose our real IDs every last day of our lives. I often say this, but it's true. The first most important decision you will make every day when you step out of bed is to whom will I submit today? You're going to submit to someone. But the right decision, of course, is to submit to the Father. And that's the decision Jesus made on this particular day. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away because I've prepared for this decision. I've prepared to live out my real identity. And this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken or what God has said through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went, they did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. Can you just say this out loud with me? Hoshana. To the, huh? You might miss this because, of course, Jesus is the Son of David. I, I mean, even Matthew goes out of his way in the beginning of his gospel to tell us that he's of the house and the lineage of David through his father. But this is what the people wanted. It wasn't the Son of God that they wanted, they wanted David. Come back, reincarnated, the warrior, the king, the unifier. They wanted a king, a temporal king, right here, right now. Give us what we want. Make everything we have marvelous again. This is what we want. Give it to us. Hosanna to the son of David. And not only that, but you need to know what Hosanna means. We don't know. The reason I know we don't know is occasionally I'll hear somebody say it out of context. They'll, they'll say it as though it means praise God. So praise God does mean praise God, and hallelujah does mean praise God. And the, the one time you should raise your hands is every time in a song you hear or sing hallelujah because that's what the Bible tells you to do. Hallelujah means praise God, but hoshana in Hebrew means save us. Hoshana is what was called out to a conquering warrior who was about to liberate the land in Jesus' day. 
When the liberator came, Hosanna would be what the people would say. Save us. Save us from what? Save us from the Romans. Save us from this poverty. Save us from this lack of prominence. And save us from all this loss of power and prestige we have. Save us from this ragtag existence that we have as a vassal state of the empire, Rome. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We love to say that. But they're not saying blessed is the one who comes as the Lord. It's blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, with the power of the Lord to do what? To save us. Hoshana in the highest heaven. Save us with the power of heaven. Why did Jesus weep? Because they... They didn't even recognize him. Their eyes were blinded. What were they blinded by? Fraudulent identities. Only real children of the heavenly father can recognize the father as who he truly is. John tells us that everybody who recognizes the father as the father recognizes the son. Only the true children, sons and daughters of the heavenly father, can see Jesus for who he really is. And these people did not see Jesus for who he really is. They saw an identity they wanted. Now, when we want somebody to be something, what, what do we do? We try to convince them to become that. We try to influence them to become who we want them to be. You know, there's one thing that we love to say, and uh, I hear it often. So I've heard it in ignition groups. I bet somebody's told our students this at some point in time. Has anybody ever, maybe, maybe Allie, Allie was the preacher today. Someday you guys are going to want to probably replace me with her. So I, I, I just ask you guys down here in the front, has anybody ever said to you, you are who you really are when nobody's looking? Has anybody told you that? Okay, you like that expression? You like it? Joseph, you have a wrinkled look on your face. I would suggest it's true that you are who you really are when no one's looking, but let me suggest the corollary to it, and it is this. You are who you really are when everyone is looking. Whether they know who you are or not, or whether you're an anonymous pseudonym on a website or whatever, you are who you really are when everybody's paying attention, but the nuance is subtle. It is this. This is the way the world works. The way the world defines us with this fraudulent identity gets us to choose a different identity. We are tempted to choose something else, and we are defined by the crowds, what they want us to be, like don't like, like, don't like. Our whole lives are constant, seeing the thumb up, thumb down. We see it in expressions on people's faces. We hear it in what they say. We hear it in the tone of their voice. Like, don't like. You like me, you don't like me. And we change who we are based on whether people give us thumbs up or thumbs down. And then once the world has defined us, in our private moments, we struggle with those identities, don't we? And in many cases, we live those identities out in private. The very sin that the world has saddled us with, we carry into our closets when no one is watching. But that's not what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus are defined by their quiet moments with God in prayer, reflection, and Scripture reading. Those identities they gain in their baptism 
sons and daughters of the living God are then reinforced in worship and fellowship with God's people, and then they are who they really are when everyone is watching, and they have what we call integrity, which means they are the same person in private as they are in public, and they are the same person in public as they are in private, and that person is one who knows their real ID in Christ as a son or daughter of the heavenly Father. The crowds didn't have a clue. And they were tempting Jesus. And I can promise you he was tempted. Listen, folks, for those of you who are struggling with this and somebody's going to, I'm going to get an email today. Yes, I think Jesus was tempted right up to the moment he breathed his last. Otherwise, the cross means nothing. Just think about his ministry for a moment, would you? Do you really believe that a man who could change water to wine for a wedding party, wasn't tempted to do it for himself. Any of you connoisseurs of good wines out there? If you could do it, wouldn't you? You know you would when nobody was watching. Water to wine, he could multiply fish and loaves of bread. He's walking down the street, he's hungry one day. You think he wasn't tempted to do it, but he didn't. He never misused the power that God gave him for his own benefit, ever, ever, not once. That's amazing. Guys, do you think you know what it means to be fully human, fully man? So in Jesus' case, women fell at his feet in awe. I don't know if you guys read the Gospels like I do, which is honestly, I think, but there is a time where a woman came to Jesus and she broke a jar of precious oil and she wiped his feet with her hair. If you do not believe that's a sensual story, something is wrong with you. You're inhibited. It's a very sensual story. Women fell at Jesus' feet in awe of him, and you don't think, tempted in every way as we are, that he was tempted to gratify the desires of the flesh? Of course he was. Of course he was in every way as we are. Crowds of people thronged to Jesus. Don't you think that Jesus was tempted to tickle their ears and bask in their affection instead of tell them the absolute truth. Of course he was, but he didn't. Rich people begged to give what they had to Jesus and follow him. Jesus told one man that was super wealthy, give it all to the poor and follow me. That's kind of stupid politically, don't you think? Yeah, give it all to me and follow me. Don't you think Jesus was tempted for a moment to think what this money could do for him, the one who had no place to lay his head? Of course he was, but he didn't. Crowds, on one occasion at least, tried to make him a king. They wanted to crown him. This is in John 6. And Jesus had to, had to, had to sneak away to stay away from them, crowning him as king. Don't you think for a second the temptation to be crowned king tempted him? Just let him do it. I can have the power to get done what I came to do. But Jesus would not. He snuck away. And don't you think 
that when people were plotting for his life and asking him hard questions, he wasn't tempted to soft-pedal the answers like a good attorney and win the day in court? No, he did not. And so he lost the day in court. He lost the day in court and suffered the punishment of a criminal. He was executed. He lost. And he chose to lose because that was the Father's will and because that's the only way he could save us. Jesus was tempted at every moment. And when the crowds were chanting at him from the side of the road, wanting to define him, he was tempted to choose the identity they gave him. See, on that day, he could have chosen pleasure. Do you agree with me? Pleasure, if all that it meant was just avoiding the pain of the cross. It could have meant more, but if all it meant was just avoiding the pain of the cross, Jesus could have chosen that. He had the capacity to make it happen. He did not. He could have chosen popularity because the people were thronging at him. But he did not. Instead, he rode into town on a donkey, a farmer's animal, to signify that he was not who they thought he was, to give them the Messiah they really needed instead of the one they wanted. And Jesus could have chosen power. With all the angels of heaven, he could have stormed the Roman bastion in Jerusalem, a mighty fortress, and he could have overtaken it, and he could have become the greatest ruler ever on the face of the earth because he had that capacity, but it was not his Father's will, and he did not do it. Now, is this about identity? Oh, my friends, it's right there in the Scripture, but you missed it. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the entire city was stirred, everybody, and asked, what did they ask? Who? Who is this? So let me get this straight. You got to ask who it is, but you just laid your coat on the road. You got to ask who this is, but you just took palm branches and waved them in the air and laid them in the streets before this man. You just you got to ask who it is, but you just cried out to him. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's really not surprising because you know human nature. How many of you DCites who've been here as long as I have or longer, you've been here a while, and no longer do you take great joy in seeing a motorcade of any sort. If you see one, it is a tremendous inhibition to your day. How many of you are like that? One's coming down the street, and instead of going, wow, you go, oh no. You look at your watch, you think this is going to interrupt me. Close to my house, there is a, a fortress. This fortress is a security fortress. Yes, I know the name of it. And yes, I know some of you work there or in places associated with this place. And this particular place, it's, it's dedicated to national security. It's kind of a, a crossroads of a sort of different security agencies. It's enormous. And, and by the way, it is lit up like you wouldn't believe. It is a heat island like none other around here. It's a top secret kind of a place. And when all the power goes out in the whole region, when it snows 14, or 15 inches. God, what happened this year? When it snows a lot and the power goes out and my house is out and my neighbor's house is out and Tyson's mall is out and everything in the whole area is out, 
This place is a city on a hill that cannot be hid. It is lit up like a Christmas tree, which is going to make it really easy to find by the cruise missiles. But anyway, that's another story. This place, you don't want to drive past this place at 8.30 in the morning or make it, because this is D.C., between 8.30 and 8.45. You don't want to be there because that's when the workers are coming in and going out, and it'll take you forever to get out of my house and here. You'd better go the back way. But when a motorcade comes there, and it happens on the regular, once in a while I'm told it actually is the president or vice president, but usually it's somebody else, you know, some defense person or whatever. But when the motorcade comes in and you see it, and you're headed in, and you've got a meeting in 10 minutes, and you normally are eight minutes from your office, and that motorcade comes through, could you please tell me what you say, unless what you would say is something that can't be said in church? Great. But the tourists love them. You're in D.C. Debbie and I one time spent the night in town just for fun. And the next day we were walking to our restaurant. And turns out the president decided to eat at the restaurant that day. Along comes the motorcade. It messed up everything. Along comes the motorcade. And I went. As soon as it came, Debbie and I went, oh, no. And the people around us went, ah, who is it? Who is it? On this particular occasion, it really was the president. I told the tourists, oh, it's the president. They say, how do you know? And I go, well, the, the beast, that's that vehicle right there. And then all, I mean, that was the president. And they go, wow. And I said, yeah, I think he waved to you as we went by. Did you see it? Really? I didn't care who it was. I'd seen it before. It didn't matter to me. But in Jesus' case, he comes in on a donkey in a poor man's clothes. And the people clamor. And then they go, wow, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who was that? Who is that? And the crowds answered themselves, well, that's just Jesus. <laughs> Listen, you, you say that's not what they were saying. Look at the whole sentence. That's just Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. This is Galilee's nowhere. Nazareth is nowhere in the middle of nowhere. That's just Jesus. Oh, well, let's crown him anyway. We always hoped the Messiah would surprise us. Let's crown him anyway and see if he gives us what we, what we want. But when they ask who this is, isn't this an identity question? Who is this? This is Jesus, beloved son of the heavenly Father in whom he is well pleased and he will choose no other path. Though sorely tempted, except the one that leads to the cross and to our eternal salvation. In our final commentary from Galatians 6, 3 through 5 and 7 through 10, Paul writes, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. And, and do not be deceived. God is not mocked like those crowds who mocked Jesus and three days later would mock and spit on him. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of believers, the sons and the daughters of the heavenly Father. Do you notice that Paul illuminates the three buckets of temptation here? We should not take pride in our earthly stations. That's power. We should not compare ourselves to others. That's prominence or popularity. And we should not sow to our flesh. And that's pleasure. And Paul, in essence, is saying here, these are three fraudulent identities that have nothing to do with being of the family of God, sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. I love also that he says this, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those in the family of believers. It's interesting to me because in another passage, he talks about opportunity too. In Ephesians chapter 5, 27, he says, give no opportunity to, same word. How do we avoid giving opportunity to the devil? By choosing purpose over power. By choosing purpose over pleasure. By choosing purpose over popularity. Now, we may be to some extent all these things in the service of our true IDs as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father, but it is the purpose of what God has made us to be and do that keeps us on point. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery because your real ID is as beloved child of the Heavenly Father. Now, let me say this directly to you to make sure you hear it. You are a beloved daughter of the Heavenly Father. He is pleased with you. You are a beloved son of the Heavenly Father. He's pleased with you. You are a beloved child of God. It's what you were made to be. And once you claim that ID, no one can ever truly define you differently again. That cannot be taken away from you. It can only be given away. And though you are tempted, you with me will say, we will keep proclaiming, I am who the I am says I am. Let me close with this quote. 2016, I was sitting where you are watching the Global Leadership Summit. If you've never been to the summit, you've missed it. It's awesome. It really is. Every year it's great. But 2016 was a highlight for me. I never take notes in a talk, ever, 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 because I don't hear what somebody's saying when I need to take notes. Debbie's personality is different. She would take note after note after note. Robin Miner on our staff writes down verbatim every word the person says. I always know I can get her notes if I need them. I just want to listen to the person. I do not take notes. Some of you take notes when I preach. I don't like to take notes. I don't care if you do or you don't. One person told me, I like to listen to you first, then go home and watch you again on the broadcast and then take notes. I said, that's insane. I can't even stand to hear myself the second time. But anyway, that's what they do. I never take notes. But on August the 3rd or so of 2016, I wrote down one speaker's quote and one speaker only, and it was Danielle Strickland. She was magnificent. 
I'll never forget this talk. It was called Leadership Interrupted. And in this talk, she said this, and I was stunned by it. True humility is agreeing with God about who you are. True humility is agreeing with God about who you are. And true dependency is agreeing with God about who He is. True dependency is about agreeing with God about who He is. And, you know, I decided you cannot do either of those without the other. They're intrinsically tied together. To acknowledge who God is is to acknowledge who He's chosen me to be. Is to say, I am, first and foremost, a son of the Heavenly Father with whom He's well pleased. Friends, listen to me. The only way you can ride down the street of life and not be defined by the crowd's on the sidelines, calling out to you to be something else, something different, is to be marked with your real ID in Christ as a son or daughter, beloved of the Heavenly Father, and with whom He is well pleased. So, say it with me one more time, would you? Just one more time. I am who the I am says I am. I am who the I am says I am. Once more, I am who the I am says I am, and I can never be anything else again. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that You would seal our identities once again by the power of the Holy Spirit, And that we would be your beloved sons and daughters when nobody's looking and when everybody is looking. And that not in just what we say, but as Jesus taught us, in by what we do, riding humbly on the donkeys of this world and professing that we are no one except sons or daughters of the Heavenly Father. We will proclaim to whatever audience we have, wherever we have influence, that we belong to you. We were created according to your purpose. We live, we breathe eternally to please you. And Lord, I pray if anybody's hearing my voice today that has never chosen to acknowledge their real ID as your son or your daughter, If there's a person who's never stepped into the waters of baptism and said, may the whole world know that I'm marked with this identity, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would convict them this day to make a commitment to you that is not just for time but for eternity. And as we walk through this week remembering how you were tempted but how you chose to live out your purpose above pleasure, above prominence, above power. So help us, Father, to make that same choice every day to say we will submit to you, belong to you, and to find our real peace and our real joy in our real ID. Father, thank you for this identity, for giving it to us, for preserving it, for granting that it can never be taken away, We profess to you out of our love that we will never give it away. In Jesus' name, amen. My brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the Father, together we are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed Holy Week, and I'll see you soon. 
today. Thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.